Turn in our Bibles to John chapter 10. In the year 2000, I had an amazing opportunity to go on a mission trip to the uh, country of Australia. And uh, by God's grace, I was able to be there for a couple of months with many other young teenage uh, kiddos. And being an incredibly excited 13-year-old, I did not sleep a wink on the overnight flight from Los Angeles to Brisbane. And back in those days, I don't know if any of you remember the way airplanes worked with movies, but in those days, you didn't have a single console in the back of the seat in front of you to look at where you could select your own options. Instead, they had a screen that would come down, and everyone in that section of the plane was going to watch whatever movie was there. Your only option was whether or not you were going to plug in the headphones and actually listen to what was on the screen. Well, being a 13-year-old and being so excited uh, to go to the continent of Australia, I stayed up the entire 16 and a half hour flight watching every movie that was on the screen. And one of those movies was a film, highly edited version of a film called Double Jeopardy. In that film, a woman, a woman goes to prison for the murder of her husband. However, not only did she not murder him, she is later released and discovers that he is not even dead. He has faked his death and he has pinned it on her so what does she do? She hunts him down and she kills him. And why does she do that? She does that because she knows she cannot go back to prison for the exact same crime she has already gone to prison for. That is referred to as double jeopardy. You can't pay the penalty for the same sin twice. If the penalty has already been paid, it cannot be required to be paid again for the same crime. Now, as Christians, we know that the most important and glorious event in all of history is the day that Jesus Christ died. Earlier, we spent time meditating on the gospel that Jesus died as a substitute for sinners when we partook of the Lord's Supper. And we sang, in the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. If there is one thing that we as Christians should seek to understand as thoroughly as possible is what exactly happened at the cross. That is our focus today. That is our goal as we are going to seek to understand both the nature and scope of the atonement that Jesus made for his people at the cross. So I would ask that you join me in prayer and ask the Lord's blessing on his word today. Father God, we come before you humbly requesting that today you would give us humble hearts. That you would help us to know what the scripture teaches and help us to believe accurately and rightly about what occurred at the cross. Father God, I pray that today's sermon would be one that is enlightening and encouraging. One that is not divisive, but one that results in devotion towards you. We pray, Lord, that this would produce a great unity and love within our church for what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, today we are continuing our six-week systematic study of salvation. And as usual, what we are going to do today to approach this systematic study is query the text. We are just going to ask the Bible a lot of questions. In particular, today, once again, we are going to ask the Bible ten big questions. However, each sermon revolves around a singular big question that we are going to seek to answer with the others. And today, here is our big question. Can God... I'm sorry, let's uh, review first. The first question we asked that was a big question was, can God do whatever he wants? Now, I hope that all of you have this tattooed permanently on your brain, and you will never forget that, yes... God can do whatever he wants because our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And then the next big question we asked is, is man totally depraved? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. 
And because man is totally depraved, he is unable to come to God without the gracious work of God to initiate the process of salvation. And then last week, we asked the big question, upon what basis does God elect his people? And we learned that God has, has chosen to elect people based upon nothing except the good pleasure of his own will. So today, we arrived at the next logical question that should arise if we believe that God elected a particular people from eternity past, then the question is, for whom did Christ die? It is my hope today to show you the doctrine of limited atonement from the scriptures so that we all might understand what the Bible teaches us about God's intentions in sending Jesus to the cross. So here's our first question that we will ask to kind of get at that larger question, for whom did Christ die? The first question is, what are the views of the atonement? You see, there are only three perspectives of the atonement that have ever been understood throughout all of Christian history. For now, we're just going to get a simple definition of each one, but they'll be fleshed out a little bit more as we move through the sermon. The first is called universal redemption. This is the belief that Jesus' death made redemption guaranteed for all people. Once I took a group of students on a trip uh, when I was a youth minister to Boston, Massachusetts to walk the Freedom Trail, I felt like it was at least part of my duty to help them understand something of history that they were being taught nothing about in their schools. So I took them to Massachusetts and I wanted to show them around the city. And at one point we decided, okay, we've kind of gone through the trail. Uh, This was the second day of this long excursion. I said, you know what, we should go down to Quincy, Massachusetts and we should go see the graves of John Adams and John Quincy Adams. And wouldn't you know it, those graves are in the basement of a church. Well, it used to be a church. Now they are a place of faith as they call it, and the woman who was their faith leader, as she referred to herself, found out that we were all Baptists and said, in order for you to go downstairs, you first have to listen to what I have to say. And she began to tell all of our students, you need to know there is no such thing as hell. You need to know that when you die, everyone goes to heaven because we are all children of God and we are all brothers and sisters of one people that God has made. Now that sounds nice, The problem is, it's the exact opposite of everything the Bible ever says about what happens after we die. We know that hell is a real place that will be populated with real people who do not trust in Christ. For example, Revelation 21.8 tells us, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This idea of universal atonement is the exact opposite of what Scripture teaches. And so for the most part, I will be ignoring this view today, as it is able to be believed only if you completely disbelieve the Scriptures in every way and disregard the Bible as your authority. So my assumption is that if you are here today, you probably do not adhere to this view. You probably have read the Scripture enough to say universal redemption is not accurate. But the second way that people have understood the cross is to believe that Jesus made redemption possible for all people. They believe that Jesus died in the exact same way for all people everywhere. And this is the belief system that I was raised in. The way that I was taught was like this. I was told by Rhonda Hawkinson in third grade that there is a train bound for glory. There is a train called salvation and everyone has a ticket. You just have to go pick it up. If you go and pick up that ticket, then you'll be permitted on the train towards heaven. This train is bound for glory, this train. And Jesus, they say, purchased this ticket at the cross, 
and made salvation possible for all, but actual only for those people who by way of reason or intelligence or sorrow or guilt or innate wisdom or inborn goodness have decided to pick up that ticket. General redemption teaches that Jesus made redemption possible for all people. This is often called the Arminian view. Particular redemption, on the other hand, often called limited atonement, teaches that Jesus died to make redemption definite for some people. It states that he was sent to atone for the sins of the elect. At the cross, Jesus laid down his life for the people who had been set apart before time in eternity past to be his chosen sheep. This is often called the Calvinist view, or particular redemption, or limited atonement. So to do a brief recap, universal redemption equals Jesus' death guarantees redemption for all. General redemption teaches that Jesus' death makes salvation possible for all. And particular redemption uh, teaches that Jesus' death makes salvation definite for the elect. Now, let's first ask the question, where do we agree? Now, I want to be sure that I always build as much common ground as possible when teaching about challenging doctrines like this one. And it is very important to see that there is a great deal of common ground to be had here. Let's consider six points of agreement between the second two examples we saw earlier. I'm not going to be speaking here of the universal redemption view because there is very minimal, if any, connection between us because we do not stand on the Bible together. But regarding those second and third views, general redemption and particular redemption, there is a great deal of common ground to be found, and we will look at six of those now. First, Calvinists and Arminians agree that the only way to heaven is through belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We all believe that the only way to heaven is through the substitutary substitutionary work of Jesus Christ dying in our place. We all agree on the fact that there is only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus the Son. Secondly, Calvinists and Arminians agree that the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to save everyone. Nobody doubts the power of the blood. Nobody on either side of the debate would ever dream of suggesting that Jesus was not capable of atoning for every sin with his precious blood. Third, Calvinists and Arminians agree that your position on this issue is not criteria upon which you will be permitted into heaven. Thank God that he is not standing at the gates of heaven and getting ready to let in some who can pass a quiz. He is not going to hand out to you an examination about your theology. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation, you are granted access to eternal life. So whether you are an Arminian or a Calvinist, there will be many of, of both sides in the kingdom forever. This does not determine your eternal position in heaven. Fourth, Calvinists and Arminians agree that the Bible preaches a unified message. And this is really important. In other words, there are no contradictions in the scriptures. When it comes to this issue, this is really important to remember because the Bible will not preach general redemption in one place and particular redemption in another. Typically, the way that people debate this is unhelpful because what they will do is one person will say, well, here's my Bible verse, and the other person will say, well, here's my Bible verse that proves my point, but they mean one thing. They do not mean more than one thing. There can only be one truth in this question. We must seek to find the actual answer. It is our responsibility as Christians, when there is an apparent contradiction, to humbly submit ourselves to the study of the Word to see what the Scripture actually teaches. Fifth, Calvinists and Arminians agree that only the elect will be saved. Now, we looked at this last week. 
Well, you can learn a lot more about this if you, if you missed last week by going back to our sermon on our website, and I encourage you to listen to that and see that we agree that only the elect will be in heaven and all of the elect will be in heaven. There is agreement on this point between Calvinists and Arminians. The only disagreement comes in how does someone become elect? And the sixth way that we agree here is that Calvinists and Arminians agree that redemption is limited in some way. We all believe that the atonement is limited. That's one of the reasons why I will not be generally using the term limited atonement because it is, it is something that is kind of a, a difficult word because it means something different depending on who you are speaking to. The word limited is unhelpful because everyone believes the atonement is limited. Arminians and Calvinists both believe this to be true. For this reason, I will not use the word limited atonement often. However, how do we see this to be true? If you are a Christian in this room, uh, you need to know that there is a limit to the atonement because not everyone will be in heaven. And so in some way, the, the atonement will be limited. Not everyone will receive the grace that comes to us in the blood of Jesus Christ. So we'll look at how that is limited later, but you need to know that that is a common belief between both sides. So if you're a Christian in this room, you should see that we have a great deal in common to stand on here. And before we move forward, I want you to know that even if you disagree with everything that I say from this point forward in this sermon, even if you look at me as though I am crazy, that does not make you any less of a Christian, certainly not to me. Although I deeply believe everything that I'm going to say is true, and I do believe it is good, and it is truth, and it is helpful to the Christian to know and understand these things, I also know that this is a difficult doctrine to receive. And I know that because I myself had a very difficult time coming to the belief of this doctrine. When I first heard about it, I thought it was not only wrong, I thought it was evil. And I spent a great deal of time studying the scriptures, trying everything I could to disprove this doctrine. And anytime I found somebody that believed this, I would go after them and try to debate with them and try to prove to the most extreme degree possible, you are wrong about this issue. I know this can be a very challenging issue for many. Two of the greatest preachers in the history of this country are John Wesley and George Whitfield. They were involved in the First Great Awakening. If you want to know what missionaries should be like, you should look at those two men, both incredible godly men who came here to this country when it was still a very pagan place and shared the gospel not only in the Northeast but also down South and even to many Indian tribes. They disagreed on this issue of limited atonement or particular redemption. Whitfield was a Calvinist, and John Wesley was an Arminian. There was one time when George Whitfield was asked by one of his friends who was with him, well, do you think that we're going to see John Wesley in heaven? And the reason he asked the question was he knew that John Wesley disagreed on this question. And I love George Whitfield's response. He said, I fear not, for he will be so near the eternal throne, and we at such a distance we shall hardly get sight of him. In other words, he's such a better Christian, he's going to be way up there, and we're going to be way back here. Just because you disagree with me on this issue does not mean that you are less of a Christian in God's book. But I do think this is a good doctrine to know and believe, and I believe it is beautiful and true, which is why I bring it to you today. But if you disagree with me on this, I would ask that you please come and reason with me together on this so that we can talk about this in grace so with that stated, let's move forward to our third question, which is, where do Calvinists and Arminians disagree? We've seen a lot of agreement. Where do we disagree on this issue? I mentioned a moment ago that both Calvinists and Arminians believe that redemption is limited. We simply disagree on the way in which it is limited. Calvinists believe that redemption is limited in scope. 
Arminians believe that it is limited in its efficacy. Calvinists believe that redemption was limited by God. Arminians believe that redemption is limited by people. Calvinists believe that Jesus died for a particular people and that all of them will go to heaven. Arminians believe that Jesus died for all people, but most of the people for whom Christ died will never receive the free gift, and most of the people for whom Christ shed his blood will go to hell. What I'm going to attempt to do for the rest of this sermon is to attempt to show you from the scriptures that Jesus accomplishes all that he sets out to do, and that not one person for whom he died will remain unsaved. The fourth question that we arrive at is, what is the logical argument against general atonement? John Owen was a brilliant Puritan author, and he put together an incredibly helpful formulation to think about the three possible answers to the question, for whom did Christ die? The possible answers for that question are that Jesus died, A, for all of the sins of all of the people, or B, for some of the sins of all of the people, or he died for all of the sins of some of the people. Now, the first option correlates to the universal view of redemption that we heard about earlier. If Jesus died for all of the sin of all of the people, then God cannot justly send anyone to hell. It's double jeopardy. The guy's already dead, and the woman's already spent time in prison, so when she comes out, she cannot go back to prison because she's already paid the time. Every sin will be judged. Every last one of them will be judged exactly one time, either on Christ at the cross or by the person who commits the sin forever in eternity. God is a just judge, and he will not require a person to pay twice. If the penalty has already been paid, it cannot be required to be paid again for the same crime. Either Jesus died for your sin, or you will experience judgment for your sin, but it cannot be both. The second possibility is that Jesus died for some of the sin of all of the people. The typical Arminian explanation of the gospel is that Jesus died for everyone. All you have to do is believe. But here is the billion-dollar question. Is unbelief a sin? Is unbelief a sin? Because if Jesus died for everything except for unbelief, then he has left a sin unpaid for. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through 19 reads, For who, though, <clears throat> for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Because of unbelief. They rebelled, they provoked God, they sinned, they were disobedient, and the author of Hebrews summarizes those four things as the term unbelief. All of those four things equal unbelief or are the product of unbelief. Why were they not allowed in? God did not permit them in because unbelief. That is because unbelief is a sin. Now, here's the really big problem. If unbelief is a sin and Jesus did not die for unbelief but has instead left that up to us to accomplish, then we are all still in our sins. And what is worse is that you and I cannot pay for our sins in any way except through eternal judgment. So if Jesus died for all of the sins of all of the people, then everyone goes to heaven. That's universal redemption. But if Jesus died for some of the sins of all of the people, then everyone goes to hell because we have no other way to pay. 
which leaves us with the only possible option that Jesus died for all of the sin of some of the people, those people being the elect of God. So, the fifth question is, what is the scope of the atonement according to the Bible? Because so far, we've talked a lot about the, the Bible, but we have not examined it deeply regarding what it actually says concerning the extent of the atonement. What we are going to do first here is consider what it says, and then we will substantiate that claim by seeing how Christ died for particular people. And then afterwards, the next several questions are going to be questions regarding objections to particular redemption. So let's ask the question again. For whom did Christ die? And let's just walk through a little bit of the New Testament, starting with Matthew and making our way forward. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save. Who? His people from their sins. Jesus came to save his people. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for who? For many. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed who? His people. Who did God redeem? His people. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And if you go on to the next several verses, he says, and you are my friends. Who did Christ die for? He died for his friends. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. What did Jesus obtain with his own blood? He obtained the church. Now, we're going to cover Romans in a bit. You might have noticed we've done Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. We're going to cover Romans in a bit quite extensively. So let's jump over to 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians, rather, chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For whom did Christ die? Well, speaking of Christians, speaking of those who have been made into new creations, Paul says that it was for our sake that he did these things. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For whom did Jesus give up his life? For the church. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus bore the sins of many. When speaking about the atoning work of the cross, it is usually spoken about in these terms of particularity in Scripture. Jesus had very clear intention of saving a specific people with his blood. His mission was very clear, and he went to the cross to accomplish it. And Jesus tells us that his mission was to ensure that all of the people that the Father had given to him would be redeemed by the cross and that he would lose none of them. Consider John chapter 6, verse 39 and following. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that the Father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If Jesus died for the elect and their sins were covered, then Jesus truly accomplished the mission for which he was sent, that he should lose nothing of the people that the Father gave him. However, if it was the intention to save everyone at the cross, if his blood was spilled for a general atonement, that salvation would be made possible for all people, then Jesus, by and large, has failed at his mission. If the mission was not to lose a single person, and Jesus says most of them will never come because it is a narrow way and few are those who find it, then Jesus has lost the majority of people that he came to save. 
But the doctrine of particular redemption teaches that when Jesus died on the cross, he actually accomplished something. He actually paid for sin. He did not potentially pay for sin. When Jesus died, he cried out, it is finished in John 19. That word in Greek is the word tetelestai. Do you know where we find that word in the ancient world? It is an important thing to understand what it means. The place we locate that term is most commonly found on receipts. So let me give you an example. The Roman army, they say, we want to buy 600 sheep to feed our hungry soldiers. And the guy would write up a receipt, just like we do now. And when the Roman officer hands over that money bag to him, he will write across the entirety of that memo, the entirety of that receipt, to tell us die, meaning paid in full. It is finished. That is what that word is used for. At the cross, Jesus says, Tetelestai, paid in full, it is finished. The sins of his people completely atoned. It is important for us to see that the sin of every person for whom Christ, uh, for every person that would ever be saved was paid for by Christ. This is a particular redemption. But, let's face it, there are rebuttals to this doctrine, and there are two in particular that are always brought forward. The first one is the question, What about the word world? Now, there are a couple of occasions when the Bible teaches that Jesus died for the world. That is true. And the most common argument for this of this sort against particular redemption comes from John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And to that I say a very hearty amen and so should you. Praise God. I will use that verse all the time to proclaim that Jesus saves sinners. The question is, what does the word world mean? That Jesus died for all people without exception? No. World is often used in the New Testament. In fact, it's used 184 times in the New Testament, and it means a variety of things. For example, perhaps the most famous example of the word world outside of the usage that I just brought forward is what you probably read at your home every Christmas day, Luke chapter 2, the very first verse says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed. But not all the world was registered and not all the world was taxed. The world, in this case, meant the Roman Empire. They did not register or tax the Chinese or Russians or Eskimos of Canada or the Aborigines of Australia. There were many around the world that were not registered or taxed. There was a context to the word, and that context was the Roman world. And let me show you a few occasions when John uses this same word in other places. The the verse in question is John 3.16, so we should ask the question, how does John utilize the word world? John 15.19, if you were of the world... The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Here we see that the word world cannot possibly mean all people because it does not include the disciples to whom Jesus is speaking. He says, you are not part of the world any longer. There is a group of people called the world, and I have called you out of that group. This word does not mean all people without exception. John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Again, the problem with this being, clearly the Pharisees who said these words have not gone after him. In other words, clearly this cannot mean that all people without exception have gone after Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, father of, the love of the Father is not in him. 
If God is telling us through the pen of John not to love the world, it must indicate that the word world does not mean all people without exception. Or 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, if you notice, all of these verses that I have selected so far, and there are literally hundreds of others, when I come to these, it says that the word world is being used to describe a system that opposes God. It is a way to speak of those who hate God's authority and rebel against him. John 3.16 is not speaking about Jesus to come to save everyone without exception. It is speaking about Jesus to come and save a people who are completely dead in their sins. They are of the system of this world. Jesus did die for the world. This means that he died for people who hated him and rejected him and would otherwise never come to him. That's what it means that Jesus died for the world. Not that he died for all people without exception, but that he did die for all people without distinction. What about the word all? That's our seventh question. Because the most common rejection of particular redemption arises over the places that uses the word all in reference to the atonement. And we're going to look at two of these cases. There's very few of them, but we'll look at two of them to help us understand what those occasions mean. The first place that we're going to look is a very familiar passage, Romans chapter 8. That's where we landed for a long time last week. And I want to take us there again because I want us to see one of these occasions where the word all is used to speak of the atonement. And as I make my way through this passage for you today, I'm going to highlight exactly who Paul is speaking about. Let's look at it together on the screen. Romans 8, 26 through 31. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Who does the Spirit help? He helps us. Who is us? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The us is the people who pray. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. These are the people who have the Spirit. And he searches hearts. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. For who is the us? It is the saints. For whom is he interceding? For the saints. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For whom do all things work together for good? For the called. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here he is speaking about the foreknown, predestined, justified, glorified people of God. Who is us? It is those people. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us... Who can be against us? Here's the crazy thing. Every Christian who has probably ever read that verse, if God is for us, who can be against us? Every Christian has probably always believed that is speaking about Christians. Us equals Christians. If God is for us, who can be against us? These verses speaking of us are speaking about the saints, the called, the foreknown, the predestined, the justified, the glorified people of God. That is who Paul is talking about when he says us, and that is really important to keep this context in mind because then we get to the very next verse, which is the verse the Arminians often use, and they will say, Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For whom did Christ die? They will say, look, it says in the Bible, he died for us all. But that word, us, serves to indicate exactly how far the all extends. If God is for us, who can be against us? For Jesus came to redeem us all. 
That word us tells us exactly how far the word all extends. All and all of us is, uh, is a very different thing. If you're not tracking with me here, study this passage this afternoon and consider once again, for whom did God give up his son? It was for the same group that he called us in the previous verses. Now look at the most common verse that people use to reject particular redemption. In fact, earlier this week, one of our beloved members heard the sermon last week and was troubled by it and was saying, I don't have this kind of figured out yet. And so I want to know, and lovingly and humbly, this person emailed me and asked the question, what about 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9? What about that when it speaks about Jesus, or God's desire to save all? Well, let me read to you both verses 8 and 9 right now. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Notice that the subject of this passage is the beloved, meaning the people of God. And in verse 9, Peter makes it clear that the patience of God is towards you. Who is he speaking about with that word you? The beloved people of God. And that is when he says, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Notice that the words any and all are still to be understood in the reference of the context of the beloved people of God. The scope of this verse is not a reference to all people everywhere without exception. It is a particular statement about the people to whom it is addressed, namely, believers who are struggling with ongoing sin in their lives. Any honest study of this verse reveals that it is not a claim of general or universal redemption. Which brings us to our eighth question, what about examples of redemption being spoken about as potential? This is a very important question to ask. Because if this is true, then at some point there has to be at least one scripture that we can look at that points to the cross and what happened there as a potential salvation, a potential redemption, a potential justification. However, there are no examples of salvation ever being spoken about in scripture by terms of potentiality. It is always spoken about in terms of the finished work of Christ. Every reference to redemption, justification, propitiation, they are always spoken about in terms of the past tense being completely and fully completed at the cross, never as a potential. For example, just one verse to show you, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us, past tense, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When did Christ redeem us? When he was hanged on the cross. Now we could spend literal hours looking at every reference. Every single time it talks about redemption, justification, propitiation. Every single one of them speaks of it as an accomplished, finalized, finished act that took place at the cross. Not a potential one that happens if we fall into the contingency of believing. And simply put, there is no verse like that in Scripture which leads us to what we should be asking as our obvious next question. Question number nine, are there any examples in Scripture excluding anyone from the work of Christ on the cross? Now, it would be unfair for me to put all of the burden of proof on the opposite side of the argument. I can't just say Arminians must provide at least one example and not also say Calvinists should present at least one example. And there are a number of proofs that we could look at. Judas is one of my favorite examples of this. Like, if you read about Judas, the son of perdition, son of perdition means child of damnation. If we look at his life, 
Do you believe that he died, Jesus died in the same way for Judas as he did for Peter? That's an important study you could look into. However, for the sake of time and simplicity, we're just going to look at one of the easiest examples to clearly see in the text. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. This was our reading this morning. John, thank you for reading this so well. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for whom? For the sheep. For whom did Christ die? For the sheep. But notice, directly after saying this, Jesus goes back to the Pharisees who were supposed to be shepherding the flock but were only self-interested, and he begins to explain to them that they are not actually part of this number. He says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them out, snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Notice that Jesus here is making a clear distinction. I lay down my life for the sheep, but you are not my sheep. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, but you are not my sheep. And you might say, I'm looking at that, and I don't see that as clearly as you do. Well, then just jump down a couple of verses to verse 26, where he says, But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. Now, we're going to look a lot more at John 10 next week. We're going to see that belief comes because of your identity as a sheep, not your sheepness becoming uh, into existence because of your belief. It's important to see that regeneration precedes faith. But today, the one thing I want you to see is that he makes a delineation in this passage. I lay down my life for the sheep. You are not my sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. You are not my sheep. All the Calvinist has to do is make one point of evidence that there is at least one person who is excluded from Jesus' purposes at the cross. And Jesus is looking at these Pharisees and he says to them, you do not believe because you were not my sheep. I am going to the cross to die for my sheep. You are not my sheep. It is a clear example of Jesus proclaiming that redemption is particular to his people. Which brings us now to our final question. What is the value of knowing that Christ died for the elect? This is the most important question that I've asked so far today. And this sermon is not just the splitting of theological hairs. It is not just a lofty debate to be held by theologians. It is a matter of deep importance for two very fundamental reasons. First, if you believe that salvation is available to all people in some way, but only accepted by some, then it leaves the door open to your boasting. If you believe that Jesus died for Adolf Hitler in the same way that he died for you, then you believe that you are intrinsically a better person than Adolf Hitler because you have figured it out. You got it right where he got it wrong. And whatever it was that caused you to be there, you took the ticket to the train. You were better or wiser or smarter or more worthy of honor than those who refused the gospel. And we will do a deep dive on this next Sunday, but for now you need to know that if you believe in particular redemption, you should be the most humble person in the world because Jesus died for you. He chose you. He set his affection on you. He went to the cross to die for his people, for his sheep, for you. He has adopted you. He has brought you into his family. Now we're going to look a lot more at the application of redemption next week, but for now you should see that this doctrine produces immense humility in those who believe it. And secondly, this view of the atonement gives us a proper view of God himself. God did not just roll the dice on who's going to be saved. He did not just send Jesus to say, you know what, go out there and kind of make it possible for everyone. Let's just see how this whole thing shakes out. Jesus did not make a potential sacrifice. He made an actual sacrifice. And God has not lost any of those whom he has chosen. Jesus will not fail in the mission, and he will never lose any of the people that God has given to him. 
Remember, God can do whatever he wants. But to push that one step further, God always does what he wants. God does not ever fail in that which he attempts. God does not ever lose what he chooses to do. Everyone that God has chosen to save will be saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now before I close in prayer, I have two final important things to note. First of all, I have spoken to a good number of people of this kind of teaching who have become miserably worried after hearing a sermon like this one or reading a book about this, and they will ask themselves, well, what if I'm not one of the elect? What if I'm not one of those people for whom Christ died? Well, if you're asking that question, you are asking the wrong question because you are making yourself the object of the question. You are not the object of the question. Christ is. And the Bible always encourages you and, and points you to look to Christ. Jesus is a good Savior who receives all who come to him. He is a good Savior who will redeem. So how do you know if you are one of his? You know by your response. You know because you come to him and you persevere with him. And that's going to be the focus of our next two sermons. That's what we're going to see next week and the week after that. How does that play out in real time with real people? And the last thing I'll say to you this morning, if you have any questions, I'm going to be right here after the service for about 15 minutes. After that, we're going to have a short business meeting for the members of the church. If you want to ask questions, I would love to spend as much time answering or discussing or speaking about these matters as you want to spend. So we've got 15 minutes before that business meeting, and that business meeting should be relatively short. If you are a member and you want to stick around after, please plan to do that. If you are not a member, if you would be willing just to kind of hang out out there or downstairs while we have the meeting and then come back up afterwards, I would be delighted to spend as much time as you want talking about this matter, especially if you are troubled or confused or angered by the things that I have said today. Please don't just sit on that. Come, let's reason together. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to all trust in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone in this room who is surprised by these doctrines or has never heard these things before, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see the scriptural teaching regarding particular redemption. And Lord, I pray that everything that I have said that is helpful will be remembered and applied, and everything that I have said that is unhelpful would be quickly forgotten. But Lord, I ask that most of all, we would glorify your son, Jesus Christ, that we would extol him, that we would honor him, that we would lift him high, and that we would rejoice in the work that he has done to redeem sinners. And we thank you, Lord, that of all the people in this room, regardless of their position on this question, we can all circle around that good news of the gospel and rejoice in that. And we pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our good Savior. Amen.